look at this passage in Mark 14, which Vinny read for us. And so if you're using the Bibles in the seats, you should find that on page 719 on most of those Bibles. If you're using your own Bible, hopefully you know where to find it. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 34. And then after the sermon, we'll have the missions report if the person giving it is back in time. They had to leave in a bit of an emergency. Hopefully not too big of an emergency. I don't know. Um, when my Oh, it was on. Okay. There we go. My sister. When she got married years ago now, she and her husband had wanted a small and a quiet wedding. But what they got instead was reporters and TV cameras showing up at their wedding rehearsal. What happened was that the local news channel had gotten wind that this young couple, my sister and her fiancé, on the weekend of their wedding had an SUV crash into the front porch of the house that they had rented to begin their new life together. You see, this little country house was positioned at the, a sharp bend in the road, and the driver of the SUV either fell asleep or lost attention, missed the curve, and plowed right into the front of their house. Well, that's what today's passage is about. It's about falling asleep. Falling asleep at the moment when you most need to be awake, at the moment when there's a big bend in the road. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at the end of Mark 13, and there Jesus warns his disciples against falling asleep. I'm coming back, he says, and you don't know when I'm coming, so stay ready, stay awake. I want to find you awake and alert and faithfully fulfilling your responsibilities when I come, so you dare not drift off to sleep. But question, and this is a question some of you raised over the past couple weeks, it's fine to say stay awake. But what if it's too late? What if you're already asleep? Well, that's what we find in today's passage. We find Jesus' disciples falling asleep. And we'll see how Jesus addresses it. So while the message of the last couple Sundays to the sleepy was stay awake, the message of today's passage to the sleeping is wake up. To understand today's passage, we, we really have to Continue to pay attention to the context, the flow of the story of what's been happening between Jesus and his followers up to this point. You see, there's a huge bend in the road coming. We saw this last Sunday. Jesus has been warning his disciples. He's been impressing upon them the, the radical, counterintuitive, countercultural, upside-down nature of his kingdom. Jesus is a king who's about to take up his reign and conquer his enemies by letting those enemies nail him to a cross. Jesus is about to be glorified through humiliation. He's about to achieve greatness through serving. He's about to gain the victory through seemingly losing. He's about to conquer through being defeated. And as Jesus is trying to teach his disciples about this, this the, the disturbing irony that goes on in the story is that in Mark 9 and 10, they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. <laughs> they're jockeying for position to reign at his right and left hand as he's trying to talk to them about the cross. They're not getting it. 
And so Jesus has been teaching them and he's been rebuking them, saying, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross and follow me. If you want to find your life, you must lose it for me. Whatever or whoever wants to be great in my kingdom must be the servant of all. Whoever wants to be first must be the very last. This is the way of Jesus' kingdom. It's the way of the cross. It's been called the great reversal. It's been called the way of downward mobility. It's been called the upside-down kingdom. You could also look at it as a huge, unexpected bend in the road. It still is, right? Every time I'm reminded of Jesus' way, it's, it's radical, it's counterintuitive, it's upside down. It, it goes against everything the world around is telling me, and it goes against what logic and reason are telling me. It, it goes against what my human nature, my flesh, believes and wants with every fiber of its being, which is self, self-protection, self-satisfaction, self-gratification. Jesus' way always hits us like a bend in the road. And what happens when you hit a big bend in the road if you're not alert, if you're not awake at the wheel? You wind up crashed onto my sister's front porch. Well, that's what Jesus' disciples are, are facing here in today's passage. Jesus has been telling them and warning them about this great bend in the road which is, is going to happen, and now they've arrived at the bend. Jesus is... is ready to lead the way, laying down his life, choosing the path of downward mobility, the, the way of lowly servanthood and sacrifice. And the question is, will his disciples follow him around this bend? Will they stick with him and keep following him? Or will they abandon him at this point? Will they veer off the path and crash? Well, immediately before our passage today, Jesus warns them because he knows what's going to happen. He warns them in verse 27, if you want to look back there. He says, you will all fall away. And Peter, ever the big mouth and the spokesman for the group, speaks up and he protests. Verse 29, even if all fall away, I will not. And Jesus replies, truly I tell you, Peter, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insists emphatically, verse 31, even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And all the others say the same. So here's what I think is happening here. The disciples are very committed to Jesus. They believe he's the Messiah, their, their long-awaited king and savior. But they still can't wrap their minds around what kind of Messiah he is. They still think he's a king who's going to raise an army or, or use his miraculous powers and, and through power and strength is going to set them free from the hated Romans and, and then set up a great and glorious Jewish kingdom and, and, and they're going to be his right-hand men when that happens any minute now. And so they're willing to fight at his side and, and even to die trying. And that's why a little later in the garden when Jesus is arrested, Peter's the first to whip out his sword and start swinging at whoever's coming toward him. He's ready to fight. He's ready to achieve. He's ready to be strong for power, for, for glory, for victory. But when Jesus doesn't resist his enemies, when Jesus willingly takes the path of weakness and surrender and of the cross, Peter and the others still can't accept that. They can't comprehend that. And so they stumble off into the dark in confusion, leaving Jesus all alone. 
There's this huge bend in the road happening. Jesus is about to go the way of the cross, and they aren't ready for it. And many days, neither are we. We, we keep flipping, reverting back to the old way, back to the, the way of self, the way of the world, the way of upward mobility. You know, a number of years ago, when, when our family lived in Canada, there was a leader in our church there who was a, become a friend of mine. He was a bit older, and I looked up to him because he was a great dad, he was a great husband, he had a passionate faith. There was a lot I liked about him. And, and Ann and I were fairly newly married at the time. We were new parents, And both of these life changes, marriage and parenting, were turning out to be much bigger challenges than we'd expected. Um, And I remember what this leader, this friend, once told me as we were talking. He said, you know, you get off work, and um, maybe it's been a hard day, and and you're feeling weary, maybe a little sorry for yourself, a little beat up. And you're looking forward to getting home and resting and putting your feet up, right? A man's home is his castle. And you're imagining how even though at work maybe people are hard on you and they misunderstand you or they criticize you, you're going home and and your wife is there and she loves you, she appreciates you, she supports you. And he said, you know, when I pull into my driveway feeling like that, I, I stop for a minute and I remember who I am. I remember that I follow Jesus. And I remember what my calling is. And then I intentionally put my servanthood hat on. And I say, my calling is to be a servant. Not so much to be loved, but to love. And then I walk inside, and I see what I can do to serve and to help and to support. Because the reality is, inside might not be a happy wife, just waiting to encourage me. I might find stress. I might find conflict. All the wives are looking at their husbands. <laughs> I might find a crying baby. I might find an angry teenager. See, what my friend had, had learned to do and, and what he was counseling me to do was to stay awake. To stay awake. To stay alert. To navigate that bend in the road. That, that bend of sacrificial love. But, but I'll tell you, it, it still doesn't come naturally and I still forget. And if I'm not careful, I might fall asleep at the wheel and I might miss the turn. Too often I do. And so here in the Garden of Gethsemane, in in today's passage, Jesus again warns his disciples with the same words as the last passage we looked at two Sundays ago. He says, keep watch. Remember that? Verse 34, again, keep watch. Verse 37, keep watch. Verse 38, watch. Same words as we saw in Mark 13. We're supposed to connect these two passages. That's why we're, we're looking at both of them together in January, the end, of, or the end of Mark 13 and now this part of Mark 14. In the last passage we looked at in Mark 13, Jesus warned his disciples to stay awake, to keep watch, to not fall asleep. But in today's passage, they do fall asleep. Not once, not twice, but three times. Jesus warns Peter how uh, Peter, who, who often steps forward among the disciples as a representative and as a spokesman, he warns him three times that he's going to deny Jesus. And then three times, Jesus warns Peter and the others to stay awake and to keep watch. But three times, Peter and the other disciples fail to keep watch. They fail to stay awake. Three times, they fall asleep. Three times, 
they fail to be alert to the turn in the road that Jesus is leading them on, on the way of the cross. So what happens when Jesus' disciples fail? What happens when they don't stay awake, when they don't keep watch? What happens when they fall asleep and they miss the turn in the road and they crash into my sister's front porch, denying Jesus, fleeing in fear, insisting that they don't even know Jesus? What happens? Well, today's passage tells us. And what it tells us contains good news, as well as warning. And the good news is that each time the disciples fail and each time they fall asleep, Jesus succeeds. Jesus stays awake. Three times they fall asleep, failing to keep watch. Three times Jesus stays awake, keeping watch. Three times they fail to stay awake. Three times Jesus goes and wakes them up. This passage is so utterly moving because it shows Jesus writ large here, giving himself as a true shepherd for failing, sleeping, unfaithful disciples. In contrast to the utter self-absorption of the disciples, we see the great loving concern of, of our shepherd for them. In contrast to the total weakness of the disciples to do what's right, to follow Jesus in the way of his kingdom, we see the great strength of our king and our savior in this story. He is strong when they are weak. Let's take a look. We'll see three ways here that Jesus is strong. Let's look at how Jesus stays awake, how he keeps watch as he faces the turn in the road, as his path bends and leads him straight for the cross. We see Jesus stay alert. We see him stay awake. We see him embrace the way of the cross. It wasn't easy even for Jesus, as we see in this passage. The book of Hebrews tells us that he was tempted to leave the path. He was been tempted in every way even as we are, Hebrews 4, 15. And he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears, Hebrews 5, 7. For those of you who saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ, if you can remember back to how that movie began, it began with this scene, with Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember how Mel Gibson had it portrayed? Jesus wrestling in prayer, almost writhing in, in anguish, sweating and squirming and struggling in tortured duress. And that seems pretty close to Mark's picture here. In fact, Jesus seems to be suffering as much here as he does later on the cross. Listen to how Mark describes it. Jesus is deeply distressed and troubled. His soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, almost as if he's swallowed up in it, drowning in it to the point of death. He falls to the ground and he prays. Why has Jesus come so undone? Up to this point, he's ever been the confident one, ever the strong, in-charge one. And yet here, at this bend in the road, as it turns to the cross, he totally comes unglued. What's oppressing him so? Many readers of the Bible have noticed uh, that, that it's got to be more than that Jesus is afraid of suffering and dying. After all, many lesser men and women have faced martyrdom bravely. Socrates is a notable example. Cool, collected, resolute as he drank the hemlock. Even Jesus' own disciples will bravely face martyrdom later. But here Jesus, our hero, is completely engulfed in distress. It's hard to find any grief in the Bible which matches or surpasses what Jesus is experiencing here in the garden. 
Abraham's sorrow at losing Isaac doesn't match it. Nor does David's at losing his best friend Jonathan. Moses never went through anything like this. Perhaps Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, comes close. Why is Jesus so trembling, so quavering, so afraid, so tortured here? The answer can only point back to verse 24 of this chapter. Jesus' words when he was with his disciples there in the upper room, breaking the bread, giving it to his disciples, saying, this is my body. And then the cup saying, this cup is my blood of the new covenant poured out for many. And this phrase for many seems to be an allusion to that great prophecy in Isaiah 53 where the suffering servant bears the sins of many. The great Isaiah prophecy elaborates on that this way. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus took our sins off of us and took them on to himself. He endured what we deserved for our sins. God's punishment, God's pouring out of God's just wrath on, on uh, what those sins deserve. The blow fell on Jesus instead of on us. And this may explain Jesus' agony in the garden. James Edwards puts it this way, commentator. At the Last Supper, we learned the objective description of Jesus' purpose. Now we hear the subjective experience of it. It's one thing, fearful as it will be, to answer for our own sins before a holy and almighty God. But who can imagine what it would be like to stand before God to answer for every sin and crime and act of malice and injury and cowardice and evil in the world? Wow. What was until this moment off in the future for Jesus was now in the garden pressing close upon Jesus and he feels the full, awful, evil weight of what it involves to fulfill his mission and his calling, to give his life in, a, in sacrificial love. The bend of the road has arrived, and Jesus stays awake, eyes wide open. He keeps watch. And so in love, he, he takes the punishment, the consequences, for every time we get drowsy and fall asleep. For every time we miss the curve, the call to self-sacrifice, the call to love, the call to put others before ourselves, and we crash into my sister's front porch, Jesus takes the consequences. There was a song back in the 90s with the line, Daddy's going to pay for your crash car. All of that comes crashing in on, on Jesus now, and he willingly, wide-eyed, fully awake, takes it for us. He is our strength when we are weak. Well, all that is the first good news that we see here in this passage. But second, Jesus gives us here also an example of how we can learn to keep watch. He shows us how to stay awake. He tells his followers how to do it, and then he shows us how to do it. First in verse 38, he tells us, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How do we resist temptation? 
How do we overcome the temptation to go along with the way of the world, the way of the flesh, the way of self, self-protection, self-absorption, self-importance, selfishness? Oh, it rises up in us every morning when we get out of bed. How do we resist the temptation? How do we join Jesus in, in offering our life instead in, in love to others uh, as servants, humbly and, and graciously? How do we follow this bend in the road that he leads us on? He says, we watch and we pray. In fact, the kind of praying we do is a watchful, alert kind of praying. Because we know the temptation, we know the spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. And so Jesus warns his disciples to watch and to pray. Because if we fail to pray, likely we will fail in practice. If we fail in prayer, likely we will fail in practice. There's a profound spiritual lesson for us here, a lesson we fail to learn at our own or to our own spiritual detriment and possibly demise. Philip Henry, I'm not sure who he was, but he put it really well. Apostasy begins at the prayer closet door. When, when we fail to step in, when we walk right past, God, sorry, no time today. E.M. Bounds, the great writer on prayer, adds, he who is too busy to pray will be too busy to live a holy life. Satan had rather we let grass grow on the path to our prayer chamber than anything else. Jesus' triumph and and the disciples' failure to stay awake and to resist temptation and to navigate the great bend in the road, the way of the cross, can be traced directly to Jesus' triumph and the disciples' failure to watch and pray in the garden. And so it goes for us today. Why? Because because our natural state, our flesh, is, is weak. The the path of least resistance is just to look out for number one, the the way of self. And and this is what happens when we get spiritually drowsy, when we're not alert. And and so we see here that part of the reason we pray is to be attentive, to to stay awake to the turn in the road that Jesus is leading us on. Well, after Jesus tells us and, and warns us to watch and pray lest we fall into temptation, he shows us, he gives us his own example in the garden. Look at Jesus in the garden here, writhing in sorrow, overwhelmed to the point of death. He's experiencing greater suffering than you ever will. He's more burdened. He's he's wrestling with temptation. He he, he doesn't uh, ask us to do anything that he isn't willing to do himself. He is our strength when we are weak. So how does Jesus stay awake? How does he resist temptation and navigate the great bend in the road? He, He prays. He prays to his Abba Father. Abba, it's, it's Aramaic. It means something like Papa. It's, it's an intimate word, but it's not a childish word. It's, it's a word a son would use to speak to dad, whether, dad was, or whether the son was three or 33. Jesus has his eyes open on his Abba, on his Father. A Father for whom he knows all things are possible. A Father whom he trusts completely to, to know what's best, to care for him, and to care for God's creation. And, and if the cross is, is Abba's way, then the cross is what Jesus wants to. Jesus, at the end of the day, wants nothing more than to bring his will into line with the will of his Father. Because Jesus knows, Jesus trusts that whatever his Father wants is the very best. Don't miss this point because this is the secret to, to prayer. It's, it's the secret to staying awake. It's, it's the secret to defeating temptation and to embracing the way of love and the way of the cross. It's keeping our eyes on our good father, our Abba, 
and knowing that his ways are good and that we can trust him. This is what our fleshly ancestors, Adam and Eve, failed to do in another garden, much earlier in the biblical story, when they also were tempted. When God's goodness was being called into question for them by by the serpent, if you know the story, did God really say you can eat from any of the trees in the garden? God knows that if you eat, you'll be like God. God doesn't want that. God isn't good. God's tricking you. He doesn't want what's best for you. How does Jesus respond? No, that's a lie. God is my Abba, my good, good Father. All his ways are good. All his ways are best. Even the way of self-sacrificial love. Even the way of the cross. So question, do we really believe that yet? Do we really believe it in our heart? Does our life, do our choices show that we believe it? If not, Jesus would counsel us to wake up. Wake up lest we miss the bend in the road and crash in destruction. Well, not only does Jesus himself wake up when his disciples sleep, and not only does he first take on himself all of his disciples' sins and failures, all his disciples' failings um, and their fallings asleep, and second, not only does he give us his example, but third, also, Jesus goes and actually wakes up his disciples. Three times he goes to them and he actually wakes them up. You can't imagine what an act of love this is, given what's going on in the garden. Because they're the ones who've left Jesus all alone, humanly speaking, in his hour of greatest need. Jesus is facing private horrors and terrors. He's fighting spiritual battles beyond what you or I will ever understand. And where are Jesus' best friends? His closest human companions when, when he needs them most. They're snoring. Not with Jesus to understand, to sympathize. Shoot, they don't even have a clue. They don't get it. They, they can't accept the way of the cross. They're still talking to, they'd still talk Jesus out of it if they could. They're no support. And, and Jesus knows they're all about to deny him, to take off, to leave him utterly alone. They fail to pray. They fail to resist temptation. They fail to keep watch. They fail to stay awake. So what does Jesus do, abandoned and all alone? When he most needs his disciples, his friends, to be there for him, to strengthen him, and to check on him. Feel sorry for himself, say, well, forget them. He still has the heart of a shepherd for them, doesn't he? He has every right to be concerned for himself, but but he manages in the midst of, of all this to be concerned for them. And he goes to them to check on them. He goes to them, he wakes them up. He warns them. Three times in the midst of his own horror and travail, Jesus steps outside of himself and he goes to them. He wakes them up. What love, what care, what concern. He's ever their shepherd, concerned for their well-being. Trying to protect them, trying to encourage them, trying to warn them. What a savior. He is our strength when we are weak. That's good news. When we fall asleep, Jesus comes to try to wake us up. Maybe Jesus is doing this for you this morning. Because let me assure you, Jesus didn't go through all this in the garden and on the cross for you to just slumber on in your spiritual life. For for you and me to, to fall asleep at the wheel and to wind up crashed on my sister's front porch. 
No, Jesus expects you. Jesus expects me. He longs for us to follow him, to become like him around that great curve, learning the way of the cross, learning the way of love, lived in sacrifice and service for others. So as we close now, I invite you to take a minute to reflect quietly to yourself. Is Jesus trying to wake you up this morning? Take a minute. What is he saying? As we're reflecting, I invite the worship band to come forward. What is it Jesus is saying to you and will you listen? Listen.